Well, the year was 2011. I have been a lifelong Cardinals fan, as are most Christians. I grew up listening to Jack Buck on KMOX with my dad on hot summer nights. And so I've seen a lot of great moments, far many more great moments than, say, Cubs fans. But 2011 tops them all. It had been a lackluster regular season, a season plagued by injuries to Albert Pujols, Adam Wainwright, David Fries, Alan Craig, Matt Holliday, among others, and by a bullpen that held leads like a sieve holds water. Near the end of a dismal August, the Cardinals found themselves with a 67-63 and record, 10 games behind the Milwaukee Brewers in the NL Central, and ten and a half games behind the Atlanta Braves in the wild card. On August 24th of 2011, their chances of making the playoffs stood at 1.3%. Then began one of the greatest comebacks in Major League Baseball history. The Cardinals went 23-9 over their final 32 games, while simultaneously the Atlanta Braves endured one of the worst collapses in baseball history with the result that the Cardinals ended up winning the wild card on the last day of the regular season. The National League Division Series saw the Cardinals playing the Philadelphia Phillies, and the Cardinals won this best-of-five series on the strength of an epic Game 5, complete Game 3 hit shut out by Chris Carpenter, who beat Roy Halladay 1-0, by the way. They went on to beat the Milwaukee Brewers in the NLCS four games to two, and this set up the 2011 World Series between the St. Louis Cardinals and the Texas Rangers. The first two games of the series were tight, with the Cardinals winning game one by a score of three to two, the Rangers taking game two by a score of two to one. They then went to Texas for game three, where Albert Pujols just absolutely unloaded. He went five for six, he hit three home runs, and he drove in six RBIs, giving the Cardinals a 16-7 win. Things were looking great heading into game four. But games four and five were dismal failures. The Cards' bats went silent, and they lost game four by a score of four to nothing in game five by a score of four to two. And so the series was headed back to St. Louis for game six with the Rangers leading three games to two. Jake Westbrook was on the mound, which was not good news if you remember the Jake Westbrook era. And the Cardinals had for two games been completely unable to solve the Rangers bullpen. It didn't look good. Now, while all of this was transpiring, my son Isaac was entering the world. Now, Isaac was born on October 25th, 2011, or, as I like to call it, after Game 5 of the World Series. We got out of the hospital on the morning of October 27th, the day of Game 6. Now, the World Series that year was on Fox, and my antenna up in Buffalo, Missouri, would not get Fox through the airwaves. And so we had been watching the World Series, I mean every game of the World Series, over at my friends Jeremy and Caleb Bernard's house who lived over near Lebanon. By the way, Jeremy Bernard is an avid Cubs fan, which tells you just what kind of friend he is to let me come over and watch every game of the World Series 
at his house. Now, October 27th, I didn't think that my wonderful wife was going to be up to heading over to watch the baseball game. And so I kind of resigned myself to listening to the radio and following along on the internet, but I underestimated her. This was our third child having babies was old hat, and so she was, she was up for it. And when, when the, the afternoon arrived, she said, are we going over to the Bernards to watch the game tonight? And I said, you bet we are. <laughs> so I called up Jeremy and asked him if we could come over. He said, sure. So Ashley, me, and two-day-old Isaac, Abby and Benjamin were staying with their grandma, we drove over to Lebanon for the game. Now, game six... 2011 World Series, it starts off very well. The Cardinals took a 2-1 lead in the first inning, but it was all downhill from there. After the Rangers scored three in the top half of the seventh to take a 7-4 lead, I was feeling really depressed. The Cardinals' back was coming to the wall. I was feeling elimination coming on. The exciting ride that had been the last two months was coming to an end. But the Cardinals still had some magic left. Alan Craig homered in the bottom of the eighth, brought them within two runs, and then in the ninth, with runners on first and second and two outs, down to their last strike, David Freeze hits a triple over, the, over Nelson Cruz's head off the right field wall to tie the game at seven and send it into extra innings. But the elation was not to last because there was this guy named Josh Hamilton, and he hit cleanup for the Rangers, and he hit about a 450-foot home run in the top of the tenth to put the Rangers up 9-7. to seven. Now, at this point, the Cardinals have displayed a, an unreal amount of magic over the previous two-month span. I'm convinced they have nothing left. The Rangers are up 9-7. We're heading into the bottom of the 10th inning. It's getting late. Isaac's getting fussy. I'm getting discouraged. And so... Much to my shame, I gave up. We packed up little Isaac. We said goodbye to the Bernards. I probably made some snide remark how at least they're not the Cubs. And then we drove home. While we were driving, the Cardinals tied the game yet again in the bottom of the 10th on a clutch two-out single by Lance Berkman. And by the time we got home, it was the bottom of the 11th inning. The score was tied 9-9, and leading off the bottom of the 11th was one David Freeze. Now, does anybody remember what happened next? All right. David Freeze, the same one who had tied the game in the bottom of the ninth with that triple to right field, on a 3-2 count, rips a fastball over the center field wall for a game-winning home run. There he is. The Cardinals went on to win game seven easily and to take the World Series victory. So the bottom of the 10th and the 11th innings of Game 6 of the 2011 World Series were probably the greatest 30 minutes in St. Louis Cardinal history, and I missed out. When all of my fellow Cardinals fans say, remember when David Freeze, I have to say, no. No, I quit. I gave up. I missed out. I went home. And so my exhortation to you this morning as we kick off our 2018 Vacation Bible School is don't make the same mistake. Don't miss out. 
don't quit, don't give up, don't go home. Because over the course of this week, you are going to hear both kids and parents the greatest news in the history of the world, which so far exceeds the news that I received when I got home that David Freeze had won game six on a bottom of the 11th home run to straightaway center. I'm going to tell you what that good news is as we proceed on this morning. So my exhortation to you is don't miss out this week as we focus upon the good news of the gospel. But I have another exhortation that expands beyond this week, and it actually arises from verse 11 of our text this morning. Don't miss out on all that God has in store for those that love and trust and follow him. Don't miss out on Jesus. Now, our theme verse for this week is 2 Peter 1.3, but I actually want to begin in 2 Peter 1.11. Okay? What would you be missing out on if you miss out on Jesus? Verse 11 tells us, for in this way, I'm going to explain what this way is over the course of this morning. In this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what is at stake when it comes to knowing and trusting and following Jesus. That's what's at stake. If you know and love and trust and follow Jesus, the Jesus that I'm going to declare to you this morning, you will enter into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And if you do not know and love and trust and follow the Jesus that I'm going to preach to you this morning, the Jesus that we are going to declare in every one of our classrooms over the course of this week, you will not enter into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In other words, the stakes of the gospel are infinitely greater than losing a World Series game. Entrance into the everlasting kingdom hangs in the balance. So my aim this morning is to preach the theme verse for this year's Vacation Bible School, which is found in 2 Peter 1.3. We read it earlier this morning. It says, For his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Now we're going to unpack that verse this morning by looking at it in its context and seeking to answer three questions, right? Question number one, to whom has God granted all things that pertain to life and godliness? Now obviously in the verse here, Peter says it's us, okay? But, but who is us? Am I a part of us? Are you a part of us? If I was to say, we won the 2011 World Series, is that an accurate statement? Because, because I've got a Cardinals shirt? Did I win the 2011 World Series? Likewise, are you someone to whom God has given all things pertaining to life and godliness? Question number two, 
How does God give these things which pertain to life and godliness? How do they come to us? I mean, is it automatic when we become a Christian? Do I receive them all on the front end? And if so, why does the life of Christians, more to the point, why does my life sometimes look ungodly if God has given to me all things that pertain to life and godliness? Third question, what is the reward of this life and godliness? I mean, why, why should we be concerned about godliness? If, if I were to poll, let's say we've got about 225, 250 people here this morning. If I were to poll 250 people, maybe not here, but just like at the Battlefield Mall on a, on a given Saturday, and I, was, I, and I was to say, give me the top three things that concern you. I guarantee you that godliness would not make the list on any of them. So the question is, this verse that declares that God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, the question is, why should you care about godliness? What is there about godliness worth caring about? If you were to ask the average kid what they want to be when they grow up, or the average adult what their aim of life is, very few of them would say, I want to be godly. And my aim this morning is to tell you why that ought to be your number one concern. So, with that in mind, let's begin dealing with the first question. Of whom does Peter speak? To whom has God granted all things that pertain to life and to godliness? I want to be clear from the beginning that it is not everyone. Not everyone is included in the promise of verse 3. In order for a promise to, to have an effect upon you, you need to know whether or not it applies to you. Has God promised to you all things that pertain to life and godliness? Well, we need to know from the get-go that not everyone possesses the resources to become godly. Not everyone possesses all things that pertain to life and godliness. We are certainly not born godly, nor do we acquire godliness through striving or effort or religious works or moral striving. Godliness is simply not in our nature. We don't have it. We can't get it from within our own resources. Because we are, every one of us, in fact, ungodly by nature. And this is simply the truth of the matter, and it does none of us any good being told any different. We have to begin this morning by facing up to the reality of the situation. There's a very common fallacy of telling children, you can be anything you set your minds to. Is that true? Well, no. I'm sorry if that blows our school counselor's curriculum out of, I'm sorry, Annie. You can't be anything you set your mind to. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a professional basketball player. I set my mind to it, Annie. 
I worked really, really hard. I put in hour after hour after hour at the gym. I shot thousands upon thousands upon thousands of baskets. I was consumed with it from about middle school through my senior year in high school. And you know what? I made myself into a pretty good high school basketball player. But you want to know what I found out when I went to college? Nearly everyone on the basketball team was bigger, faster, stronger, and better than I was. And I went to a small Division II college. No matter how hard I tried, no matter how many years of work I had put in, I could not make myself any taller. I could not make my arms any longer. I couldn't make my legs move faster. I couldn't make my feet quicker. I couldn't make my muscle fibers fire faster than they did. Because the fact of the matter is, I was not born with the genetics that make a great basketball player. My dad, God bless him, is 5 foot 11 inches tall and clumsy, and my mom does not have an athletic bone in her body. It didn't matter how hard I tried, I wasn't going to make it. Neither are we born to be godly. No matter how hard we try, no matter how many years of going to church, no matter how many years of reading the Bible, if we're trying to accomplish that in our own strength, by our own effort, through our own strivings, we'll never get there. It's not in our DNA. Because we inherit from our parents, who inherited from their parents, who inherited from their parents, all the way back to the beginning, a spiritual and genetic predisposition to ungodliness. We inherit a nature that is fundamentally bent towards sin, towards selfishness, towards self-rule. We enter this world desiring to exert our own will to go our own way and to be our own God, which is the essence of ungodliness. Godliness is joyfully living in right relation to God, reflecting his character, obeying his will, and enjoying his presence. Let me say that again. Godliness is joyfully living in right relation to God, reflecting his character, obeying his will, and enjoying his presence. Ungodliness is exactly the opposite. It is the quality of one who is turned away from God, one whose character is at odds with God's character, one who lives in disobedience to God's will, and one who has no desire to be in God's presence. We are born into this world ungodly, and therefore we cannot produce lives of godliness. It is just not in our DNA. And so when Peter says that to us has been granted all things that pertain to life and godliness, the us of whom he is speaking must not be all humanity as we are by nature. Something must have happened for us and something must have happened to us in order for the mere potential of godliness to exist. Now, If we look back to verse 1, we will see who the us are to whom God has granted 
these things that pertain to life and godliness. Look up the page at verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. So Peter identifies the recipients of his letter, us, as those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. And here we come face to face with the biblical gospel. Here is the answer to the problem for how ungodly people may be accepted in God's sight and given the resources to become godly. It happens through faith and it happens by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it happens in no other way. In his wisdom and his kindness and his divine power, God changes both our nature, our DNA, and our status before him. Prior to this change, which the Bible calls conversion, we were by nature ungodly, that was our DNA, and our status before God was that of condemned sinners under God's wrath. We were not headed, as verse 11 says, for that entrance into the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. Rather, we were headed for God's everlasting wrath and eternal judgment. But God stepped in and saved us. God sent his son to be our representative, to be our substitute, to die our death, to suffer our penalty, and to be our righteousness in our place. And Peter affirms that this Jesus is both God and man. Jesus is our God and Savior. As a man, he was a fit representative for man. As God, he was perfectly holy and perfectly righteous. In other words, he is and was what we are not by nature, namely godly. And when Jesus died upon the cross, therefore he was not dying for his own sins because he had none. He was godly. Rather, he was dying for the sins of ungodly people and unrighteous people like us. Paul encapsulates this truth in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8, when he says, For while we were still weak, you could substitute the word ungodly in there. While we were still weak and ungodly, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's three truths I want you to say about yourself, not out loud, but in your heart. Three truths. If you want to conform your thought and your heart to the biblical witness this morning, truth number one, I am ungodly by nature. Me. 
Number two, nevertheless, God loves me. And number three, Christ died for me. Those are the truths of the gospel. God changes our status from guilty to not guilty, from unrighteous to righteous, because Jesus Christ, our God and Savior, died for our guilt and our unrighteousness and our sin. This is what the Bible calls, here's the big biblical word for it, justification, which simply means God declares us to be something that we're not, namely righteous, not on account of our own righteousness, but on account of the righteousness and the blood of Jesus Christ who died in our place. So how do we receive this declaration? How do we receive this justification? How do we become right in the sight of God so that we can become one of those us to whom God gives all things? Peter says it's by faith alone, doesn't he? To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. And this faith is a gift. It is obtained from God. So we do not receive this new status and this new nature that comes along with it by working really hard, by putting in long hours at the spiritual gym, by years and years of training. We are justified before God by a gift of faith. Paul says this in Romans 4, 4 through 5, to the one who works His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So being justified before God comes by believing, trusting, setting your hope upon the promise that God is good enough, kind enough, and merciful enough to justify ungodly sinners like you and like me, through the blood and righteousness of his beloved godly son. And it is to them, to the justified, verse 1, to the believer, to the Christian, and only to them that God gives the resources, the power, the all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's the us. Christians, believers, those who have obtained a faith by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I called this section in our outlines, which are on the back of your bulletin, making the team as a way of demonstrating that God does not give the resources for life and godliness to everyone, but only to us, only to those who are on his team. But I also called it making the team as a rather tongue-in-cheek way of pointing out that nobody really makes the team. For instance, I could never make the Golden State Warriors, who just won their third out of fourth NBA championship on Friday night. I would have no hope of trying out for that team. I can't shoot like Steph Curry. I can't score like Kevin Durant. I can't defend like Draymond Green, my chances of making the Warriors on the basis of my own merits is zero. 
My only hope of making the Warriors team is if by some wonder of grace, Steve Kerr were to call me up and declare me to be a part of the team based upon the merits of someone else, someone who had tried out in my place and had earned a spot on the roster. Now, that sounds like a ridiculous scenario, doesn't it? It doesn't happen. Yet that's exactly what God has done in the case of those who are on his team. He has declared me to be his child. He has declared me to be an heir of his everlasting kingdom based not upon my own merits, but based upon the merits of his son. This is what it means to have obtained a faith of the same kind as ours. There's no second class members of the team. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this morning, my first question to you is, are you on the team? Which is another way of asking, have you been justified by faith in the blood and the righteousness of Christ alone? Your status before God has to be changed. Your nature has to be changed. You have to be converted before verse 3 will apply to you. Before you can receive the power for godliness, you must receive the pardon for sin. Now, imagine that Steve Kerr did call me up one day and he told me that he by the power vested in him, was officially declaring me a member of the Golden State Warriors, and furthermore, that I was to begin practicing with them tomorrow. You know what my first thought would be? Absolute elation. That's the coolest thing I've ever heard of in the world. My second thought, which would immediately follow upon the first, would be one of absolute terror. Because how on earth am I going to compete against all those freak athletes who are a hundred times bigger, faster, stronger, and better than me? I'm going to get absolutely destroyed out on that court. But on the phone, Coach Kerr assures me that everything's going to be okay. You see, he says, something has happened to you that you're not fully aware of yet. So just trust me. Just come out to Oakland, practice with us, and you'll find that you possess an ability that you've never known before. So, although I'm still skeptical, I hang up the phone, I pack my bag, I get on a plane, I fly out to California, and I show up for practice. I don't feel particularly different, just humbled that I was chosen for the team and terrified that I'll fail and make a fool of myself. But once I get out on the floor and I get a ball in my hands and I begin warming up, I can sense that something's different. Something indeed has changed. There's an extra spring in my step. There's an extra bounce in my jump. My muscles are firing quicker than usual and my, my shot is sailing smoothly through the hoop with that satisfying flip, right, that every good shooter knows when the ball snaps through the net. Not only, in other words, was I named to the team by an act of pure, unmerited grace, but in being named to the team, I also received the power to compete. That's the essence of Peter's statement in verse 3. 
Not only has God justified us through faith in the righteousness of Christ, verse 1, thereby reconciling us to God, removing our guilt, removing our sin, removing God's wrath from us, but he's also, in addition, given us his divine power. All things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Every resource to live a life of authentic godliness has been granted to us by God's divine power. Now to return to my analogy, not only has God chosen me and made me a part of his team through no working of my own, but only through the working of Jesus Christ, but he's also given me the power to compete successfully in the game. And although Peter does not specify what is the source of this new power, the rest of the scriptures make it clear that it is the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit at work within us. Ezekiel 36, 27, this was part of the new covenant gospel promise. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and make you careful to obey my rules. I will put my spirit within you to cause you to walk in godliness. So all of the power and all of the resources for godliness which God grants to his people comes through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. So, what we've seen so far is that God not only grants us a pardon for our ungodliness, that's verse 1, but he also grants us the power to walk in godliness, that's verse 3. Now here's the question that I want to ask. Do I receive this power all at once, or does it come to me gradually throughout life? Here's my answer. All of the resources that I need for life and godliness are made available to me the moment I'm converted and become a Christian. But my appropriation of those resources is gradual and progressive throughout my entire life. Let me illustrate with my analogy again, right? Me, Steve Kerr calls, you're a member of the team, I go right? Now that I have been named to the team, I walk out on the court, I notice that something's different. I notice that there's skills there I didn't previously have. There's athletic ability there I didn't previously possess. But it's not as if I walk out on the court and immediately I'm an all-star. That's not the way the Holy Spirit gives me power. Rather, it's more like being granted unlimited potential, but potential that must be worked out through years of diligent practice if it's to be realized. Steph Curry has unlimited potential. Is there any doubt about that after you watched him hit that 38-foot three-pointer at the end of the first half in game three? I mean, he can just shoot from anywhere on the court. Unlimited potential. That's the unmerited gift of his DNA. My dad is 5'11 and clumsy. His dad was an NBA all-star. But how many shots do you think that Steph Curry has taken in his life in practice and in games? How many shots? Millions. How many hours do you think he has spent dribbling, shooting, working on fundamental skills in the improvement of his game. Thousands upon thousands. 
In athletics as in any endeavor, potential will remain mere potential unless it is accessed and harnessed through diligent, persevering practice. The same is true of godliness. As in basketball, so in the Christian life, practice makes perfect. Peter makes that truth plain in what follows. So as I read these verses, verses 3 to 8, I want you to listen for how those resources for life and godliness come to me. Listen for how I access them. Verse 3. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of his divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, your virtue with knowledge, your knowledge with self-control, your self-control with steadfastness, your steadfastness with godliness, your godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Does that not sound like maybe, I don't know, the fundamentals of the Christian life? And what does he tell you to do with those fundamentals? Practice them. That is how you're going to achieve godliness. We grow in godliness, he says, through the knowledge of God and his word. Do you know everything there is to know about God and his word? No. You learn more day by day by day. And so if God is giving us the resources that we need by God, for godliness through the knowledge of his word, and I'm growing in his knowledge of his word day by day by day, I must be growing in those resources day by day by day as well. Perfection on the basketball court comes through diligent practice, and godliness in the Christian life comes through diligent practice of the fundamentals of faith Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, and godliness and brotherly love. This list, by the way, is neither exhaustive, as if these were the only eight fundamentals, the only eight virtues in the Christian life, nor are they consecutive, as if you couldn't move on to virtue until you had faith, and you couldn't move on from there until you had virtue. Rather, these are like the fundamental virtues of the Christian life, just an a example of them. The virtues are to the Christian what dribbling, passing, shooting, rebounding, and defense are to basketball. And they're not realized in your life apart from diligent, persevering effort, which is why Peter says in verse 5, make every effort. So let me return to my analogy. Why? Because I like it and it's fun. So Steve Kerr calls me up out of the blue. Tells me he's naming me to the Golden State Warriors because someone else has tried out in my place and earned a spot on the roster for me. In being made a part of the team, I was also endowed with unlimited potential that I've never possessed before. Some of that potential is immediately evident when I step out on the court and find myself quicker, stronger, faster, and smoother than I ever was before. 
but potential never made anyone a great basketball player. It takes years and years, hour upon hour of blood and sweat and tears, working tirelessly on the fundamentals of the game to turn potential into reality. You fail too many times to count, but you learn from those failures and you get up and you try again. Natural potential, what we might call giftedness, combined with diligent practice is what makes a great basketball player and the same things make a great Christian. We receive the giftedness through faith. We receive the potential through faith. We work out that potential as we diligently make every effort to add those fundamentals of the Christian faith to our life. Now, what's the result? What's the result of unlimited potential combined with diligent effort and practice? Peter says it's eternal life. He expresses this by means of a positive and negative pair, verses 8 and 9. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So in the Christian life, as it is in basketball or any sport, you are either practicing, improving, and moving onward and forward, or you're falling behind. See, no one's static, either on the basketball court or in the Christian life. If you will put the potential which God has given you through the indwelling spirit to work, you will be an effective and fruitful Christian, verse 8. If you don't, you will fade away and eventually be cut from the team because you don't belong, verse 9. Now, We don't have time for everything. I'm just going to tell you this morning, don't press that analogy too far and make a theological point that neither I nor Peter intend to make. But let me be as clear as I can. Here's the way I'm going to summarize verses 8 and 9. Christians pursue godliness. If they don't pursue godliness, they're not Christians. Did you catch that? Christians pursue godliness. Verse 8. If they don't pursue godliness, they're not Christians. Verse 9. This seems to be Peter's point in verses 10 and 11. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. Practice hard. Train hard to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this is how you confirm your calling and your election. This is how you know whether or not you're really a Christian. This is how you know whether or not you're really on the team, whether the Holy Spirit really dwells within you, whether you've really received the pardon for your sins and the power for godliness. This is how you know if you really belong to God. You know by the fact that you are in the game, working hard, practicing diligently, completing with everything you got. And if you're not doing that, maybe you just bought the shirt. What is the end of such a life? 
entrance into the hall of faith. Not the hall of fame, mind you, because the only one who is famous in heaven is Jesus. Because he alone secured your pardon for sin and your power for godliness. But the hall of faith, the company of all those who by grace through faith pursued Christ and achieved godliness. Pardon for sin and power for godliness implemented through diligent practice in the Christian life. This is how God brings his people into the everlasting kingdom of his son, Jesus Christ. So here's the question. Are you in the game? Here's the point of this entire message. As you open your hearts before God, pardon for sin through faith. Power for godliness through the indwelling spirit. Implemented through diligent practice is how God provides for you richly an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, are you in the game? I want you to ask yourself, have I trusted in Christ so as to become a part of the team? Are my sins forgiven? Have I entered into a new status before God, one of pardoned, forgiven, belonging? Question number two, are you playing hard? Or are you sort of meandering through the drills, loafing up and down the court, giving it maximum 50%? This week's VBS is about making the team, getting in the game, and giving it your all. Why? Because victory hangs in the balance. Both pardon for sin and power for godliness are available to us through faith in Jesus Christ. And both are necessary for entrance into the eternal kingdom. But, and hear me, the pardon must come first. First. 